Hey everyone, my name is Sheila and I am a Connect Group Leader here at HDBB and a final year student at St. Paul's Theological College. I have worked as a management consultant for the last seven years and I'm currently in this edutech company called Frog Asia. We are 110 days away from Christmas! How exciting is that? And one of my favorite things about Christmas is watching Christmas movies. And one of my favorite movies is a show called Love Actually. Okay, don't judge me. I do love me a good rom-com. But if you haven't watched it, it's basically a star-studded movie that has 10 different storylines within the whole movie and each intersect to each other in significant ways. So what looks like isolated people and stories is actually one large story with interwoven lives. Reading the book of Esther in the Old Testament feels a little bit like that. As you might know, we are currently in a three-part series based on the book of Esther, and today is the last day, so if you haven't watched the last two, do check them out online. It's a fascinating book centered around four main characters. First, there's the powerful king of Persia, King Xerxes. His wife disobeys him, and hence he calls a nationwide search for his next queen. Secondly, there's a Jewish man called Mordecai who adopted his orphan niece, Esther. Mordecai gets her into this pool of women uh, who were being prepared for the king and continues to watch over her from afar. Thirdly, there's this vengeful officer called Haman who is obsessed with gaining favor with the king and gaining respect of the people. He gets angry with Mordecai who disrespects him a few times and then calls for this mass genocide of all the Jews within the land. Quite a drastic action. And of course, finally, there's Esther who gets selected by the king eventually to be his new queen, which puts her in this really important position in the palace to save the Jews should she choose to step up. Dodgy politicians, lavish spending of money, Chaotic, temperamental people in power, severe injustice directed towards a minority group, unpredictable events, feelings of despair, mourning and fear laced with silhouettes of hope. Yes, I am still talking about Esther and not talking about the year 2020, as similar as it sounds. And as you read the book, one can't help but ask, where is God in all of this? No, literally. Where is God? God is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. In fact, it's the only book in the Bible that has no mention of him. There's no miracles, there's no angels, there's no burning bush or voice from heaven or talking animals, there's no church or synagogue, there's no pastor or priest or prophet, just people and their storylines. In fact, the lack of mention of God has caused a lot of confusion in the church for a very long time. For centuries, early uh, theologians didn't know what to make of this book. They called Esther the secular book of the Bible. And yet, isn't this how we all experience lives? Most of our lives don't look like the regular angel visitation uh, on a daily basis, but rather we are just trying to make the best of our everyday lives. How many of us in our own lives have asked this question, where is God? In our politics, in the injustice, in the socioeconomic disparity around us, in the chaos, where is God? As we go to work from Monday to Friday, as we do our household chores, as we run our errands, as we get on with our day to day, where is God? 
as we now don our masks and pray for a vaccine, as we stay at home and adhere to SOPs, as we try to make sense of the last few months, where is God? Wherever you're at, however you feel at this time, that a book like Esther exists in the Bible is hope for all of us. God appears to be missing, and yet God is moving for the good of his people. In the absence of his mention, there is a presence of his power by his spirit. And as Miles said a couple of weeks back, this is a story of God working behind the scenes. God, not Esther, is the main character of this book, weaving the storylines together, much like the scriptwriter of Love Actually, actually. And he does the same in our lives. He is as much at work in our mundane as he is at work in his miracles. Do you believe that God is for you? Do you believe that God sees you, that he has a plan for you, a plan that is intentional and good? Last week, Abby talked to us about what we can learn from the character Esther. Esther was faithful to her people and chose to do the right thing, leveraging her position in the royal palace um, to try and save the Jews from Haman's uh, genocide plan. She was intentional and careful in planning her every step. But here's the thing, right? Esther, in all her plans, uh, even in her best plan, could not have gotten her success all on her own. Why? There's just so much that was outside of her control, which had to be in place for her to succeed. We even read that her first meeting with the king, it was kind of like a probability game, a 50-50 chance of she would either get a meeting with the king or she would be sentenced to death. Now, it doesn't get more out of control than that. And as the reader of this book, we have the privilege of seeing how all the pieces come together in this book. And we see that God's provision happens Firstly, in the spaces that are outside of Esther's control, but secondly and most importantly, they happen in the spaces that she would never know about, even in hindsight. And one such key event is in today's reading from chapter 6. So let's read Esther chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. <clears throat> that night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles the record of his reign to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bictana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. This is referring to an event that happened in chapter 2, where Mordecai, he overhears of an assassination plan for the king, and he reports this to Esther, and they both managed to get the king safe. This happened about five years before the events in this verse. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. Haman at this point was actually pretty furious at Mordecai because just before, in, the chap in chapter 5, we see Mordecai disrespect him again. And so he was so furious that he had set up a poll uh, to have Mordecai impaled and he had turned up at the palace to get the king's permission to sentence Mordecai to death. But boy, was he in for a surprise. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? 
Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honour, have him bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king's the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. For Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. And he told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Chapter 6 is known to be the pivot point of the whole story of Esther. Miles mentioned this too a couple of weeks back, that chapter 6 is the turning point where the story goes from disaster, chapters 1 to 5, to redemption, chapters 7 to 10, for the Jewish people. The author of the book writes this in such a brilliant way. In the entire of chapter 6, we see um, that what is happening to the Jews at a macro level is mirrored to what is happening uh, to Mordecai at a micro level. At the start of this chapter, we see Haman plot to kill Mordecai and he goes to the king for the authority to do so. The king, having remembered what Mordecai had done before, wants to reward him. And as he meets Haman, before Haman can get a word in, the king asks Haman to honour Mordecai instead and parade him throughout the city. Throughout this event, Mordecai, a Jewish man, gains favour with the king. And this event is absolutely instrumental for all of the events to follow as Esther pleads with the king to save the Jews. And it all happened how? The king had insomnia. Verse 1, that night the king could not sleep. That is the turning point of the whole story of Esther. The king had insomnia. And to be honest, this insomnia might have been the most spiritual thing that happens in the whole book. In all of the schemes and the plans of all the people in the book of Esther, the turning point is attributed to an event that happens outside of everyone's control. Esther is not even mentioned in the entire of chapter 6. She and Mordecai were probably bewildered as to why Mordecai was suddenly being celebrated five years later for something he had done a long time ago. But yet it turned the tables and paved the way for them in the following chapters. Do you believe that God works for your good? That unbeknownst to you and I, God intervenes in ways that we may never realize or even expect. Often when we think of a salvation plan, we have our own ideas of what that should look like. We plan and then maybe we appeal to God about our plan and hope that things fall into place. As a consultant, I make a living out of planning things and hoping things fall into place according to the plan that we set out to do. And if I were God's consultant in this story of Esther, and thankfully I am not, 
I would have probably tried first to remove the people who were causing all the trouble, namely King Xerxes and Haman himself, because clearly they were the issue with the whole story. Why were they even there to begin with? But in this story, God moves not just despite the people, but rather he moves through these people and he turned around the situation in a more victorious way. Let's look at how. First, let's talk about the king. King Xerxes is both the most frustrating character in the book and yet also the most instrumental. Just to give you some context as to who he is, King Xerxes, with the empire that he had at the time, uh, he had inherited this empire from his father, he was the world's most powerful person at that time. His empire spanned over 3 million square miles, which is roughly about the size of the United States. Um, just think about, imagine a combination of the United, the president of the United States of America, plus the richest person in the world, plus um, Beyonce, plus Elon Musk, plus all of them all together, put together in one person. You know, you get what I mean. Basically, anyone who has influence, wealth, and power, um, all put together in one person. That is King Xerxes, multiplied by 100. He would have been revered by his people like a god. His words became the law. That's why his decrees are so powerful and they cannot be overturned, unless by another decree by him himself. King Xerxes is the constant in the whole story, appearing right from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 10. Nothing happens in this story without the king allowing it to happen. Think about it. He fires his queen, then chose Esther to be his queen. He elected Haman as his right-hand man. He approves Haman's decree, allowing genocide to take place. He decided to honor Mordecai after his insomnia. He listened to Esther's appeal for the Jews. He executed Haman. He allowed Esther to write a new decree protecting the Jews. And then he elevated Mordecai to be his right-hand man. But also, what we read about this king is that he was an absolutely temperamental leader who loved the good lavish party. He made poor choices for his leadership team and yet was easily swayed by their advice, which were usually morally questionable. This king is utter chaos in power. And yet, the king single-handedly controlled the storyline and caused all of the events within Esther to happen. God used this king to bring salvation to the Jews and to elevate them to have a place in society where they were previously fugitives. Can God work in the chaos? And I wonder whether you have ever felt that the only power around you was chaos. Maybe like Esther, you feel that the leaders around you take control of your storyline. Or maybe it's not a person, but a situation. Maybe these recent months have felt chaotic with events happening around us that seem to be controlling our storylines. The good news in Esther is that the king does not actually have the ultimate say. He might be the most powerful person in his empire, but the storyline of the people are held together by God. God is the ultimate king in their story and in ours as well, and he works for the good of his people. Next, we read about Haman. Haman is the textbook evil villain of the story. Only this isn't a Disney story, but the reality of real people living in a real time. 
Haman, in his vengefulness against one man, decided to orchestrate genocide to wipe out all of the Jewish people within the king's empire. The Jewish people at the time, they were fugitives in the land, having been exiled before and having no place to really call their home. They were the minority and they were the outcast. Haman eventually was sentenced to death before he could carry out his plan. But why was he even there to begin with? Haman's plot was pure evil. As we look to the world around us, maybe we too can't help but identify that there are things that happen that don't seem right. But we also know that Haman's plan brought the plight of the Jews to the forefront of the story. Where they were previously a voiceless minority, they were suddenly at the center of attention, at the mercy of this king. And we read that, that when God turned, that God turned around what Haman meant for evil, um, he didn't just restore the people to what they were before, but he restored them to a place that was better. He elevated them in society and he gave them an identity within it. God does not orchestrate or cause evil to happen. And while we are on this side of heaven, we will continue to see evil at work. But can God bring good out of it? Yes, he can. I think about recent times, you know, um, what's going on in the world. We, we, we've had COVID-19 this first half of the year, but an aftermath of that is that we've seen just reports of mental health cases on the rise. We've seen reports of um, people facing marriage challenges and divorce cases on the rise as well. And while this is absolutely devastating and we mourn with those who mourn and, we, and, and, and as we read things like this, we are called to pray into these situations. But a, a result of this as well is that suddenly topics that have previously been taboo, that have previously not been talked about, are being brought to the forefront, they're being brought to, um, to, to, to spaces where people can have healthy conversations about it. We see also reports of um, marriage counselling being on the rise and people seeking help for their mental health conditions and for their family life. Good things have come out of a situation that seemed so dire, that seemed so devastating. Does God cause evil? I don't think so. He grieves with us and we read that His Holy Spirit grieves with us when we grieve. But can He turn evil around? Can He bring good out of the evil things that happen? Can He bring things to become a, a better situation, an even better position than we were before, out of the bad things that happen? Yes, He can. And as Christians, we are called to this greater hope. We hope not because we think less of the evil that happens, but because we think more of a God who is ultimately in control. Our vision for the world and our vision for transformation has a higher standard. It has a God standard. And we are called to pray into this and press into God for His vision for us, for His purpose for us in all of what's going on in the world. I hope that this series on the book of Esther intrigues you enough to have a read of this fascinating book and to dive into the details of the story that maybe we weren't able to cover in just three sermons. There's so much that we can learn from each of the characters and how God emerges within this seemingly godless story. 
Esther pushes us to look at our own lives and consider how God might be actively working behind the scenes, even in the face of great threat or tragedy, to accomplish His good and perfect purposes. We are called to trust God in, to trust in God's providence even when we can't see it working or don't understand what is happening. But as we come to a close, the final question that I had as I read this book is, who are we in this story? There's much to be learned from all of the different characters about how to live our lives. But really, who are we in this story? And it dawned on me that we are the people of God. We are the Jews. The story of Esther, as with many other stories in the Old Testament, is a foreshadowing of the gospel, of the coming of Jesus who brought salvation for all of mankind. We in this story, we are the people of God who are looking for a savior, who are looking for someone um, to bring us a hope, to bring us hope in, in moments of despair. We are the Jews that in this story, they were fugitives, they didn't have a home, they didn't have an identity in this place. They, they were shaped by the world around them. They were shaped by the culture around them. They were shaped by what, um, what was being told to them. They were shaped by the narrative around them. And so we are them and what we see in the New Testament is we see that hope comes for us in the person of Jesus. He died for us on the cross so that we can have a right relationship with God. He died for us on the cross so that we can have this hope and that we can find our place and find our purpose and find our identity, not in the world around us, not in the hopelessness or the despair or the cultures around us, but in a person that is Jesus uh, and in his vision for our lives. Jesus was a better Mordecai, he was a better Esther, and he was a better king. He is our true friend, he is our true saviour, and our one true king. And he is for us, and he works all things for the good of those who love him. Amen. Right now, let's just take a moment to, maybe wherever you're at, uh, you may want to stand, uh, and let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to just come and fill us afresh, and come and speak to us um, about his vision and his purpose for us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come right now and fill each and every person who's, who's listening to this right now. Would you come and fill us afresh? Would you be speaking to us words of life and words of truth in this time?